We'll hear argument next in number 96792, uh, Kalina v. Fletcher. Mr. Mailing, you might proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents the important question of whether a prosecutor is entitled to absolute immunity when she causes an arrest warrant to issue in conjunction with her filing of criminal charges against an individual. In this case, Deputy Prosecutor Lynn Kalina reviewed and professionally evaluated a completed police report, determined that a burglary charge would be filed and then prepared and filed an information, a motion requesting the issuance of an arrest warrant, and a certification which summarized the evidence for the court. In Imbler, Buckley, and Burns, this court set forth a workable approach to determine which functions of a prosecutor are entitled to absolute immunity. Absolute immunity applies when the challenged activity is undertaken in the prosecutor's role as advocate for the state, is intimately associated with the judicial phase of the criminal process and is connected with the initiation and conduct of a prosecution. Mr. Mailing, uh, is, is the crucial thing here the information or the application for the arrest warrant? What was the basis for the action against uh, the officials? It was a burglary charge, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and is a part of the charging package is the deputy prosecutor prepared an information, which is the initial pleading uh, in a prosecution, also requested the issuance of an arrest warrant, and provided the certification to the court to meet the Gernstein uh, requirement. Each of the factors well, which in, uh, yeah. in... In Washington, could a police officer have obtained the arrest warrant? Justice uh, O'Connor, the police officer could not have obtain the arrest warrant. So Washington is different from most other states in that regard? It is different than uh, many states, and of course there's a diversity of procedures throughout the United States, but in the state of Washington is that an arrest warrant cannot be issued unless it's in connection with the filing. In a state where a police officer could obtain the arrest warrant, even though the prosecutor filed the information against a defendant, um, would the police officer uh, have absolute immunity under our case law for a false statement in getting the arrest warrant? Uh, no, uh, Justice uh, O'Connor, the police officer would not have no. uh, absolute We would look immunity. at the function, this court said. We would look to the function, but... Uh, and what would be the function if the police officer were getting it? If the police officer was uh, obtaining the arrest warrant, it would be the part of the completion of his investigation in preparation for handing the case over to the 
uh, prosecutor. I might just now, now, do you say that the function is different in Washington where the prosecutor gets the arrest warrant? The principles that we are advocating. Or is it the same function? I, I, I don't know how you analyze what the function is when the, in, in this case where it is the prosecuting attorney who gets the arrest warrant. How is that different from where the police officer does? The, the analysis is really the same in this uh, sense. It is part of the initiation of a prosecution by a prosecutor. And as a part of that initiation, a prosecutor, and it was recognized in the Buckley case, can take a whole series of preliminary acts leading up to that initiation. Uh, in our state, uh, one of those uh, preliminary acts uh, that goes together with the information is the preparation of the certification. In other states, and let's say a grand jury uh, state, is that a police officer uh, may uh, uh, obtain an arrest uh, warrant, and, uh, and uh, that would be different than occurs in our state, but the police officer is performing a different <coughs> function. The principle in Imbler protects that sensitive decision for prosecutors to initiate a prosecution and to conduct a prosecution. If, if, if you simply have an information filed and don't seek an arrest warrant, is this certification necessary under no, Washington law? Uh, in, under our uh, state procedures, at least in King County's a local rule, is that we are required to provide a summary, a brief summary of the facts uh, for the uh, court. And so our certification really meets uh, two purposes. One is the Gerstein uh, requirement. But in King County, we have a local rule that requires us to provide a brief uh, summary uh, to the, the court. But is it possible uh, that in some cases in King County, there would be an information filed, but not, not an uh, effort to immediately arrest the person? In the state of uh, Washington, as a matter of routine, any time that we file an information in a felony case is that we request the issuance of an arrest uh, warrant. The next step that is taken, if it's a less serious type of a felony offense, is that a series of letters is sent out to the uh, defendant, which occurred uh, in the case of before uh, the court, uh, requesting their voluntary appearance. And if that uh, occurs, the case uh, proceeds. So uh, here, letters were sent uh, before the arrest warrant was issued, requesting the defendant to surrender? After the arrest warrant was uh, uh, ordered uh, by the court, but before it was actually served, there was several letters that were sent to the defendant, uh, but uh, they went to the wrong address uh, and uh, did not reach uh, the defendant. And when that occurred, uh, the arrest warrant was served. Is, does the prosecutor's description or summary that you, you um, uh, just explained have to be under oath? The, uh, the certification, yes, does need to be under the oath to meet the uh, Gernstein uh, uh, requirement, is that we really adopted this uh, procedure in the state of Washington following the Gernstein uh, decision, and it not only meets uh, the requirements of uh, Gernstein, but we believe that it is a better uh, practice uh, to follow to have the prosecutor prepare this uh, uh, document. And the reason is, is that I think it really acts as a citizen's uh, buffer, is that a prosecutor, by preparing the certification, I think provides for a more thorough uh, evaluation of the police file. You're not just reading through it, but you're required to prepare a uh, summary. And it's also of benefit to the court 
because it provides a more orderly flow of information to the court, uh, rather than getting it from, let's say, in King County, where there's 26 different uh, police jurisdictions. Mr. Melling, is, is it the case here that the certification could have been uh, executed by a police officer? There's no, yes. Uh, there's no requirement in the state of Washington that it be uh, prepared uh, by a, a prosecutor. It could have been uh, prepared by a police officer, but as the standard practice in the 39 counties in the state of uh, Washington, and really for the reasons that I uh, advanced. Right. I understand that. If, if, a, uh, if a police officer did prepare a certification, I take it, on your view, the police officer would also be subject to an absolute immunity. Under those circumstances, the, if it was prepared by a police officer, uh, he would not have absolute immunity. Well, unless how, is, was, how is that possible under, under what I understand to be the functional approach and the functional approach that your argument assumed? And that was that it was the function, not the officer, uh, with respect to which the immunity decision is made. First is that, um, unlike a prosecutor, is the police officer wouldn't meet the threshold question of immunity analysis, and that is that there's no common law tradition of absolute immunity. No, but he's performing the same function. Uh, And, I mean, the the theory of the the way the common law practice is applied to immunity doctrine is we look to the function and see whether that function at common law was subject to an immunity. Now, if, if on that standard the prosecutor gets absolute immunity, then it's, I think it necessarily follows that the police officer would get absolute immunity. Justice Souter, they're performing uh, different uh, functions. The well, I don't know. I guess explain that to me. I don't see why, because I thought we judged, uh, we, we judged the function without respect to the officer. So why are they different? This Court has set forth the uh, functional test and said, that we look to the nature and function of the act being performed and not just to the act uh, itself. And the nature and function of the act here uh, is the provision of information under oath with, it, with whatever probability of, of soundness that oath carries on the basis of which a magistrate is going to issue an arrest warrant. That function, it seems to me, is exactly the same whether it's performed by a police officer or whether it's performed by a prosecutor. It is a different function. If it's performed by a police officer, as a police officer can't move from the, quote, investigative function over to the prosecutorial advocatory uh, function. Are you saying that a police officer never has absolute immunity because he's always engaged in investigating and never crosses the divide into prosecuting? So that the same, very same act, which we all agree is involved here, the same act is characterized one way if it's done by a police officer, a different way if it's done by the prosecutor, because the prosecutor does prosecute and police officers don't prosecute. A a police officer, uh, Justice Ginsburg, would have absolute immunity if they were functioning as a witness. I believe a police officer also if uh, it was attached to a prosecutor's office and was acting under the direction of a uh, prosecutor and acting as the agent, uh, yes, they would have absolute immunity in that uh, circumstances, but generally no, because they are performing a different function. How does the same act, uh, swearing at this uh, warrant application, 
become prosecutorial if done by one person, but merely investigatory if done by another? This Court has uh, indicated uh, also, I I believe, is that you can have a situation in which uh, prosecutors do a whole series of preliminary acts in conjunction with the filing of criminal charges. Now, some of those acts can be performed by someone other than a prosecutor. For example, a police officer, questioning of witnesses, visiting the crime scene, signing a certification. But when those functions are performed by a prosecutor, the full force and reasons for absolute immunity uh, apply. The difference between that and the police officer is that the police officer can't be a part of the function that this court has protected. And the function that is being protected is the sensitive decision to initiate a prosecution, which can involve, as the Buckley uh, case said, and this court reaffirmed, can uh, have a whole series of uh, things associated uh, with that. So it is really a different function. Mr. Melling, I think you're doing, making the following assumption in your argument, and I'd like you to comment on it. The issue, I guess, one way to put the issue here is, how do we characterize this function of providing the certification? Do we characterize it in a very narrow and specific sense of providing the certification, period, we carve that out? Or do we characterize it as part of a broader process, the process of initiating a prosecution? If we characterize it in the narrow sense, merely providing, in effect, uh, evidence under oath, then there doesn't seem to be anything peculiar about that function to prosecutors. Police officers can do it. If we characterize it in the broad sense and say, oh, it's just a part of initiating a prosecution, then we're talking about a function that prosecutors do and that prosecutors, generally speaking, get absolute immunity for. And it seems to me that, that when, when we ask you the, 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 the question, how do you characterize, you shift back and forth. Uh, and I don't think we, I mean, I, we, we really can't shift back and forth. I would have thought that the reason for characterizing it narrowly was the Malley case. In the Malley case, generally speaking, it's prosecutors that get search warrants. But witnesses who come forward to provide evidence for those search warrants don't get absolute immunity. And I would have thought that there was an analogy there to this situation. Prosecutors get arrest warrants, but prosecutors don't necessarily provide evidence. So it would have seemed to me that the Malley case was a reason to characterize the function narrowly as presenting evidence as opposed to characterizing the function broadly as just a little part of going after uh, or, or of getting a search warrant and starting a prosecution. Is, is, is my argument wrong about the application of Malley in deciding whether you take the narrow view or the broad view? Justice Souter, I think you've really <clears throat> raised the issue before the Court, and that is whether you take the broad view or the narrow uh, view. I think that what the Court was indicating in the Malley case is expressing also a concern of making incautious comparisons between the activities of police officers and the activities of prosecutors and shows that there's a dramatic difference between those type of uh, activities. But Malley took the narrow view on the, the way you and I are using the terms. Malley took the view that a police officer uh, cannot be held to be analogous uh, to a 
uh, prosecutor. Right. But the, the Malley case said when you're getting a search warrant, which is essentially a prosecutorial kind of function, the witness, the police witness, does not get absolute immunity. And it seems to me there's an analogy here. Uh, prosecutors initiate prosecutions. They get the official ball rolling, and one incident of that is getting the arrest warrant. But it's, it's the provision of evidence on the basis of which the arrest warrant uh, issues that seems to be analogous to the provision of evidence on the basis of which the search warrant issues. So it seems to me that Malley took the narrow view, and my question is, why shouldn't we, for consistency reasons, take the narrow view here? What the court indicated, Justice Souter, in the Malley case is that the police officer in that situation was one step removed, really, from the initiation of a prosecution and was really not intimately associated with the judicial phase of the criminal uh, process. And that's, uh, and that's uh, true throughout their whole uh, activities because, as I indicated, what the court was seeking to do in the Imbler uh, case is to protect the sensitive decision to prosecute, to initiate a prosecution. And the court in the Buckley case has reaffirmed the fact that a prosecutor may undertake a whole series of preliminary acts in conjunction with the initiation of that uh, prosecution. But prosecutors are not characteristically witnesses. In the <clears throat> state of uh, Washington, it is the practice that we uh, follow uh, but Ms. Kalina was not a testifying or a complaining witness uh, in uh, this case, is that her certification specifically disclaimed the role of being a testifying uh, witness. She did not purport to offer first-hand uh, knowledge. How did she disclaim it? In the uh, joint uh, uh, appendix uh, on uh, page, um, which is in the joint appendix on page... 19, I think. 19. It indicates at the beginning that Lynn Clean is a deputy prosecutor and is familiar with the police report and investigation conducted in Seattle Police De uh, Department case, that this case contains the following upon which the motion for the determination of probable cause is made. I but think she goes on to sign it under pen penalty of perjury, which uh, I understand she's not required to do, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. She is, <clears throat> she is required to uh, sign it under oath for purposes of meeting the Gernstein uh, principle, but the fact that she does or doesn't so uh, sign shouldn't be the factor that determines whether absolute immunity applies uh, or not. Are there but other you know, there's situations? A in her, excuse me, there's a sentence in her certification that purports to be a statement of fact. The defendant, Rodney Fletcher, has never been associated with the school in any manner and did not have permission to enter the school. She states that as a fact, not as uh, — that, that's not a fact that would necessarily — There was <clears> — there was an affidavit, uh, Justice Stevens, in the uh, file from the principal that uh, Mr. Fletcher had no association uh, with the school, and that was the uh, reason. But, but the, the person to who, who issued the warrant relied on that as a statement of fact by the person who signed this. That is correct. And that was an inaccurate statement purporting to be given by her own she, — she said it, it would let the reader think she's saying she knew that. It would have been preferred if she had made a reference to the affidavit. Well, that may be the whole — what this whole case is in, about. In other words, she can, she can say, consistently with your procedure, I have reviewed the police report, and based on the police report, I believe the facts to be as the following, and, and, and then sign it under penalty of perjury? Yes. That, that suffices? Yes. 
And if that were done, would there be probable cause, a basis for probable cause within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment? We uh, believe that there is a probable uh, cause. No, but I mean, on, on that theory, the prosecutor comes up and says, look, I really don't know anything about this, but these, these people out here are, are telling me that it is so. And I'm not warranting to you that they're right. I'm just telling you what I've got in the file. Would that be a, a sufficient predicate for probable cause mm. for Fourth Amendment purposes? Mm. Under, um, under our procedures is that she's stating that she's familiar with the report. Well, but the magistrate has got to make, whoever issues the yeah. warrant, has mm. got to make a determination of fact. Can a magistrate make a determination of fact sufficient for constitutional purposes when the only thing the magistrate has before him is a statement from somebody saying, I really don't know anything about this, but there are some people out there who happen to, to think uh, the following uh, uh, propositions are true. Would that be enough? For yes, Justice uh, Souter, because <clears throat> under, you can meet the Gernstein requirement with uh, hearsay evidence, and that is the yeah, character. But when of you the meet evidence. it with hearsay evidence, you, in effect, are warranting that, the, that you believe the hearsay is correct and that there is a sufficient basis for doing it. And it seems to me the prosecutor can't have it both ways. The prosecutor can't say, look, I'm not a witness here, therefore I get absolute immunity for whatever is done, and at the same time, satisfy Fourth Amendment standards for providing evidence on the basis of which probable cause is found by an independent magistrate. I don't see how you can have it both ways. Trial lawyers and uh, prosecutors routinely make factual representations uh, to the court, and they're under high duty to tell the truth whether they are sworn or not uh, sworn. Thank you, Mr. Mailing. Uh, Ms. Millett, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter both asked the critical question in this case, and that is how we define the function that is issue. We believe it's defined as it was in Mali, and that is the function of seeking an arrest warrant, um, not simply the signing of a certification. What is critical in this case, and is a critical distinction from Mali, is, it, is the function of seeking an arrest warrant in conjunction with the filing of criminal charges against an individual. In Mali, the, the police officer sought the arrest warrant without the involvement of a prosecutor long before any indictment process had started by a prosecutor. There was no prosecutorial decision. In that sense, the criminal judicial process had not yet been invoked by the government, and that is the critical distinction in this case, in our opinion. The reason would it be the same case if she had filed a certification just as a lawyer but not not sworn to anything and then the magistrate had said to her when she appeared in court I'd like to know whether the defendant had any access to the property before do you have a witness who can testify to that and she had responded saying yes and then he swore her as a witness and she said exactly what she said here would she be immune um, we believe that she would get absolute immunity for statements in court, whether it would be considered prosecutorial immunity or witness immunity under Burns versus Reed and Briscoe versus LaHue. Um, it, it may not satisfy the Fourth Amendment, but of course, a Fourth Amendment violation does not strip one of immunity, else it would be no immunity. You at think all. witness immunity in the, in the context of testimony and trial applies to any sworn statement in support of an affidavit for a search warrant? Uh, I, I think it depends. Uh, arrest warrant, I think. Arrest search, search warrant, right. Maybe much further away from the criminal judicial process. But once 
the process has been initiated by the government as it has here, or triggered as it is in the federal system, um, that's, that whether it's written or set, whether a statement is written or said in court should not make a functional difference for purposes of absolute immunity. So we actually believe that the, had a police officer signed it, or for example, the suspect information report that was also filed um, with the information and request for arrest warrant here, would merit absolute Well, your immunity. view, then, I want to be sure I understand, your view is even if this had been signed by a police officer, there would be immunity. It would. It, the police officer probably, probably wouldn't be called prosecutorial immunity, but it would be the traditional common law immunity for affidavits. So um, you're, you're relying not on prosecutorial immunity, but witness immunity is your basic position, that that well, applies in this context. If it were a police officer, that the label might be witness. I'm, sure, I'm not sure if absolute immunity attaches what the exact label matters, but well, but it matters a great deal, I think, because right. under your theory here, it really doesn't matter whether she's a prosecutor at all, because you're suggesting, if I understand you correctly, that any affidavit, any person who makes an affidavit in support of an arrest warrant is entitled to absolute immunity. It, um, two things. One, if that, if that is being filed at the initiation or onset of at formal the procedures you, by the government. File an information. Right. And the, re- the reason I'm equivocating somewhat about the prosecutor here is just because I think um, I think that she was forming a hybrid function here. If, if instead Ms. Kalina had simply been a, a witness, I understand. Of I'm asking to the extent that she mm-hmm. forming the, the, the half of the hybrid that mm-hmm. was testimonial rather than uh, a lawyer presenting a case to a judge. That half, you say, is equally entitled to immunity under the witness immunity doctrine. Under witness, or one wants to call it affidavit immunity. So it doesn't matter if she's a prosecutor. Or a, a, member of the mafia or a police officer. She's still entitled to... It may matter for some things, but right, certainly it, for purposes of whether absolute immunity attaches. But I think the reasoning here is a little more complicated because, um, and one of our concerns uh, in this absolute case... Absolute immunity, but not, not perjury, would it would there be, or just absolute immunity, immunity from a 1983 suit or... From... from from civil liability damages, certainly no one here is pretending that absolute immunity gives, even judges don't get it from criminal prosecutions or perjury charges or... Do, do I understand that you are drawing a straight timeline? You're saying, yes, under Mali, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who the actor is, it's the function. So you are saying, which I didn't understand from the brief, that, that whether it's a police officer or prosecutor, once it's, the prosecution is being put before the court, anybody who signs this application gets absolute immunity. But if it's removed, it's before the prosecutor has decided whether it's going to be a criminal case, then it's only qualified whoever does it. Um, on, on, t- taking your, your, your first part of your question, I believe the timeline is absolutely critical for purposes of deciding whether um, fun- is a f- critical factor in functional analysis. And yes, it's very relevant here because the timeline, it's not so much a date timeline, but it's an initiation of the judicial process, which is exactly what the purposes of immunity doctrine are supposed to cover. I think before um, actual initiation of a, a criminal prosecution um, or of criminal proceedings, um, say if it was a search warrant back at the investigatory stage, it's, it's a harder question um, because in, in, in one sense, any time a prosecutor, and this is what the court noted in Burns versus Reed, any time a prosecutor is coming to a court and presenting information to the court to provide the basis for a judicial action, that that should merit absolute prosecutorial immunity. You're acting in an advocatory role. And the reason we give immunity 
is to protect the process itself, the ability of the court to collect information and make the decisions necessary in that case. Um, so it may be a little bit harder when we're — the further we get away from the initiation of the criminal process, the harder the question is we concede that. But you would still need to consider um, the, the important goal of absolute immunity to allow the judicial system to receive information, however delivered, whether one thinks it's a proper way or improper, ethical, unethical, whatever, mistaken. But the, the important thing is that the process be protected. And that's what we think absolute immunity would protect in this situation. As, as, you, as you rightly say, or rightly indicate, I mean, the issuance of a search warrant is a, is a beginning of a judicial procedure, too. And, and uh, I, I assume that, that your argument assumes that there is a historic, given the way we go about the, the immunity question, that there's a basis in historical practice for distinguishing between the immunity that, that seems to be implied by the initiation of the one judicial process, search warrant, and the other judicial process, arrest warrant and, and filing of charges. Is, is there, uh, and where, do, where would I find uh, the, the historical basis for drawing the line where you would have us draw it? The, 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 the closest, strongest case for the common law precedent for immunity in, in, in this context, which I think is on, on force with this situation, is the case Kittler versus Kelsch, which is cited, I believe, on page 19 of our, ba- of our brief and was cited by this court in Imbler. And there what you had was a prosecutor who sought an arrest warrant, swore out a complaint. And in that context, from the description in the case, the complaint was not only legal uh, claims, but also factual claims. And in fact, when you look at the dissent in that case, the dissent advocated drawing the exact line that respondents propose here. And that is that you get absolute immunity for filing the complaint and seeking the arrest warrant, but not for the factual assertion. And what about the other side? That, of that the, had nothing to do with, with, functional, with functional distinctions. Uh, the common law distinction was between, between giving evidence and uh, initiating a prosecution. There was civil liability for a wrongful initiation of a prosecution. There was no civil uh, liability for testimony. Well, I think it, and that's the explanation of that case, not, uh, not, not, not the functional distinction that, that, that our, our cases have, I think, uh, mistakenly applied. Uh, I'm, mistakenly, if we think we're, we're tracking what the common law was. Well, I think it depends. There, there's more than sort of two factors coming together. There's also the question of whether it was private um, or a public prosecutorial decision that was being made. For example, the complaining witness cases that are cited by this court in the Malley case um, all involved private persons. Um, and so there's an entirely separate argument for why absolute immunity did not attach to that. Is, the, is, is, the, is, is the implication of what you're saying that Malley was wrongly decided? No, the implication is that Malley was different because the, because, because the police officer there was not involved with the prosecutor and a prosecutorial decision to initiate criminal proceedings, the police officer was more analogous to a private complaining witness than we have here where Ms. Kalina or the police officer who, or whomever is signing the affidavit is affiliated with the actual onset of judicial proceedings. And it is the onset of judicial proceedings and the provision of information to the court um, for that ongoing process that is critical. And one of the reasons it's critical is, again, unlike the police officer in Malley versus Briggs, a prosecutor in this context is going to have ongoing responsibilities in the case and ongoing, ongoing duties that will be supervised and 
protected by the court, and the defendant will also have those protections. Would your uh, argument be different if we were dealing with a state in which the historical practice had been traditionally uh, that the what is called the certification here, the 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 the, the statement under oath about fact, uh, was given by by police officers and investigators as opposed to prosecutors? Would would your argument be different then, or would your conclusion be different? Um, th- what is critical is whether it is the initiation, wh- whether that would be combined with a prosecutorial decision to, as here, initiate a criminal prosecution. Um, who signs it? As I said, we think the suspect. If so, the witness would get the immunity. Yes, whether it would be called prosecutorial immunity or not. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. Mellon. Just- Mr. Ford. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Let me begin by answering a couple of questions that I don't think got answered. One is, our claim is based exclusively on the fact that Rodney Fletcher was arrested, that his person was seized without probable cause, and that has uh, been our position from the beginning. The focus of this is on the certification that made it possible, both under the Federal Constitution and Washington uh, Criminal Rule 2.2, for an arrest warrant rather than a summons to issue. Another question I'd like to point out is Washington law does provide for summons uh, procedures in felony cases, non-seizure um, type documents. So you, you would not have made this claim uh, if there had been no actual arrest, even though the arrest warrant or the certification might have been It's not in the nature of a defamation claim. It is not in the nature of a defamation claim, Mr. Chief Justice. It is in, a, in the nature of a false arrest claim, uh, just as the Malley case was. And, of course, under the Albright case, there's considerable controversy, at least, over whether you even have a 1983 uh, claim if you are only hailed into court by summons. And certainly Mr. Fletcher's damages would be uh, very different if they existed at all. Next question I'd like to answer, Justice O'Connor's uh, question about whether police officers can issue these, uh, can swear in support of uh, arrest warrants, and they certainly can, and, and I think it is actually I would differ with Mr. Mailing with regard to whether under Washington law a police officer could obtain an arrest warrant without the interposition of a prosecutor. Under our justice court rules or, lim- or, or lower court rules, um, Washington has a procedure where the prosecutors have begun to file direct in superior court informations, felonies, without going through preliminary hearings in the lower courts. In our lower courts, the uh, district courts and municipal courts, we have a uh, criminal rule for the uh, courts of limited jurisdiction 2.1c, which provides even citizens can issue complaints, and those complaints can be followed by arrest warrants, again, if a complainant swears under oath to facts that make out probable cause. And what is the jurisdiction over what kind of criminal actions do those lower courts have jurisdiction over? Uh, That rule itself, Your Honor, would would only deal with um, misdemeanors. Uh, But in felonies, you can also have those same courts have jurisdiction to issue arrest warrants, although I admit it would not be on the complaint only of a citizen or police officer for felonies. And this was a felony involved here? This was a felony, although I'm not, I, I would contend there's no constitutional difference. How can that be? I don't, I, I'm just trying to understand the procedure. You mean if, in conjunction with the issuance of a case, uh, the prosecution decides I'd like to arrest Mr. Smith under Washington law, it's a felony, you need a, a probable cause and a warrant, couldn't a policeman attest to the fact? The policeman could attest to the fact, uh, Justice Breyer. As I understood the question, it was whether the policeman could do this completely by him or herself. Why not? Uh, because you do, under Washington law, you do have to have either a complaint or an information filed in order to issue an arrest warrant from a Ever? Court. Ever? I mean, if a policeman's walking down the street 
and he sees a crime. Can make a warrantless arrest. But, uh, well, he, he knows there is a crime going on, and he wants to produce a warrant, and uh, he goes to the magistrate and says, please give me a warrant. Under our criminal rules, you can't do that? Uh, he cannot do that. And our rules, I do believe... Even, even if there's no case going on, a policeman couldn't just get a warrant for an arrest uh, uh, ordinarily uh, when he knows there's a crime going on in a building? And Under Washington procedure, only if there has been an initiation, at least by complaint, um, in, in a court. However, that is one, and, and one thing I would also point out, the certification that Justice Kennedy asked about uh, is a King County local rule, and that, it's not a certification, it's a summary, and it is not sworn. It is, a, it is a different document, but they have the certification of probable cause that is kind of an omnibus document that kind of takes care of all these problems at once, that the well, actual well, rule does it, not require in, in that instance, is there an underlying sworn affidavit from the police officer? Does somebody swear to something? There has to be a sworn statement by somebody uh, under our criminal rules, just as there does have to be under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. So somebody has to swear. It does not have to be a police uh, a prosecutor. And indeed, there's no rule. This certification process is something I think, as Mr. Mailing acknowledged in many of his statements, is grown up informally. It's not provided for by rule or statute anywhere. The prosecutors have just decided they're going to do this. And this, and this is the practice in, in, in most felony cases that the prosecutor makes this summary and the certification under oath? That is my experience, Your Honor. Yes. The Mr. Ford, you, you could not uh, have made a complaint for essentially malicious prosecution against the prosecutor, could you? That is the difference, Justice Ginsburg. This is a claim for false arrest. And so you're really saying that less is more in this case. In other words, by slicing it thinner and saying we're just going to go after this uh, arrest warrant, you were able to bring a 1983 case where your fundamental grievance of malicious prosecution can't bring under 1983 because that would surely trigger absolute prosecutorial immunity. I would submit, Your Honor, our fundamental claim is false arrest, and, and we would be we would have a different defendant if we had um, a police officer who had issued this uh, false um, affidavit that re resulted in the arrest. But we would still have a cause of action, which is being arrested without probable cause. A public official under color of state law made up the probable cause that resulted in Rodney Fletcher. But the arrest. largest, if we were talking not in lawyers' terms, the largest offense to your client is that this client was not only arrested, but that there was a prosecution initiated, criminal charges filed against that person. Well, I, I don't know. Our complaint it has to do with his arrest, and, and indeed under Albright, yes, I'm because not... you're slicing it thinner because... Under the law, malicious prosecution is not an avenue that's open to you. You can, um, do you disagree with that, that that's why you're bringing this case as a false arrest case rather than the larger false prosecution? Because the, that's what provided for law, because that's what happened to Rodney Fletcher. He, that's his complaint. He was hauled into jail. After that, they, the prosecution went nowhere. They gave up very quickly. But his problem was he got hauled into the King County Jail, had to spend, spend the night in jail, have his wife come get him and his children, those sorts of things. That's his complaint. And I think that, there, again, there's a question even uh, under the Albright case as to whether he could complain at all against anybody for the broader question. But this is what happened to him, and that's why the complaint has been brought as it has, because also what happened to him is exactly the same as what happened to um, Mr. Briggs in the Malley versus Briggs case. And, and I beg to differ with my um, uh, uh, 
colleagues with regard to the differences there. In, in, in the Malley versus Briggs case, Officer Malley was not a percipient witness, did not claim to be. If, you, if the opinion states that he went in and reviewed a log not, of... Not what kind of a witness? This is a word the government's come up with, percipient, Your oh, Honor. One who I hear some... Uh, That's correct. And the government has suggested that there's a difference. And I, I would submit that there is not. I think that the government has an interest in protecting DEA or, or, or FBI agents who often perform this function in the U.S. Attorney's offices, because the U.S. Attorneys never do this um, themselves, but they are trying to bring the immunity to cover their police you, are, officers. Are they, are they saying, and here I may be speaking, you have to correct me if I'm not, that in many states, I would guess uh, it's possible for a policeman to get a warrant and arrest somebody a few hours or days before a prosecutor does anything in court. I believe that was the case in Rhode Island with Mr. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then they're saying, but Washington, oddly enough, that isn't so. In, in Washington, the only time you arrest a felon with a warrant, the only time, is in conjunction with a prosecutor filing an information. And there is no other time. And therefore, unlike all other states, because of this odd work of Washington procedure, uh, the arrest of a felon is part of the court function. Uh, the court filing function. It's not in Rhode Island. It's not anywhere else because it exists in other places that, that you could arrest a person uh, without filing uh, 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 an information, but not so in Washington. So, so in those other places, it's a police duty. In Washington, it's different. In Washington, it's part of the case initiating. I'm not buying that argument. But I'm, I'm, I want to focus it specifically. Let me focus specifically on that then, Justice Breyer. It's not correct in Washington because you can arrest somebody in conjunction with filing a complaint. Now, that's just another word, but it's a word that's very important because Officer Briggs, or Officer Malley, I'm sorry, got a complaint. He swore out a complaint to a judge, and the complaint ordered any police officer to bring the defendant to the court uh, to be held to answer on the complaint. It was exactly the same function. He was having him arrested to answer a criminal complaint that was based on his summary of a police report that he had read, and he swore under oath that the, that made out probable cause and went to a judge, and the judge, and they had a file, it has a case number, and they issued a court documents, a complaint, and an arrest warrant. Here we had an information and an arrest warrant. In, the only difference is a word. But in Mali, uh, uh, the, the, the person was arrested on the basis of this complaint, but a grand jury, which in Rhode Island is apparently committed to the job of finding problems, refused to indict. Here the information is a substitute for the indictment, not the complaint, isn't it? And I agree, Mr. Chief Justice, that's true for the Sixth Amendment purpose of initiating a criminal prosecution. But for purposes of the Fourth Amendment and for purposes of the traditional common law background that we were looking at in 1871, there was no difference. Every variety of this kind of behavior, of somebody coming before a judge, swearing to facts, having the judge have a complaint or a written exit or, a, or whatever you call it, and arresting somebody based on the sworn statement of that person who was called a complaining witness at common law, very ancient law in this regard. But, uh, but on my, um, the point I was trying to make was that if you compare the facts in Mali with the facts in this case, the facts in Mali seem to have been further removed from the determination of probable cause because there 
it ultimately went to a grand jury after all the Malley facts had happened, and the grand jury refuses to indict. Here the information is filed, and that in itself is a determination of probable cause. Well, it's an initial determination of probable cause, Your Honor, but it doesn't justify a, an arrest. And in Washington, of course, it's not final. We also do have a safeguard uh, under a case called State versus Snapset where a judge can determine whether the prosecutor did, in fact, have probable cause to bring this information. So we, there are many systems in our, in our country, uh, but the common denominator we have now in our states and in the territories and states and even back into England um, in the law that this is based on is that when people come into before a judge or a magistrate or a justice of the peace or whatever they happen to be called locally and swear to facts and get a, uh, some kind of an order that allows somebody else's body to be seized, they were never held to be immune from liability uh, before 1871, before 1791, when the oath or affirmation clause was put into the Fourth Amendment, establishing the function that we believe is relevant here, a very ancient and important function of providing that oath or affirmation. It's never been uh, subject to immunity. And the fact that the prosecutors in Washington have really voluntarily, just as a matter of their own practice and convenience, or perhaps for this reason, usurped that function without even the Washington legislature or court rules telling them to, and said, well, we'll be the witnesses here. They have taken on a function that prosecutors, as far as I can tell, reading when we cited some, some historical materials that go back into the 13th and 14th century, the prosecutors and their predecessors have never acted as witnesses. It's a fundamentally different function of swearing to facts and bringing the facts in and saying, I vouch for these facts. And in most contexts, of course, um, there is, as uh, I think Justice Stevens pointed out, a defamation immunity for witnesses. But there has always been an exception in this particular context, was where a person comes in, a person who might say exactly the same things at a trial, and be absolutely immune. But when the context is the initiation of a matter before some kind of judicial officer, the purpose of which is to take somebody's body into custody, yes. that that person has never been held immune for li from liability, no matter what their rank in society. But it wasn't defamation liability, as, as, the, as the perjured testimony would be. It, it was liability for malicious prosecution, essentially, right? I think the, the differences between malicious prosecution and false arrest and trespass and trespass on the case and the different things in the common law have, I have not grasped yet, Justice Scalia. But what I understand is that whatever you called it at that time, nobody recognized it as a circumstance in which uh, a person should be immune from liability, even though they were doing something swearing very much like what they could do in court under absolute immunity. When they did it in this context, when ex parte, I would assume that the policy reasons are because there's no protection of the courtroom. It's an ex parte proceeding. It involves an initiation of a very drastic governmental action against a person. Whatever those policy reasons were, the common law in 1871 was clear that in that context, a swearer, a, a person who took an oath or affirmation, was not subject to the immunities that they would be later in the proceeding. And I think that is the difference. And there is no historical basis. This one, 1927. So, Mr. Ford, if the prosecutor did the same thing, but once the trial is going on, says, I need to arrest this material witness, and the police report tells me this, this, and this, and so I swear out an arrest warrant, but it's in court while the trial is going on to hold the material witness. That would be absolutely immune? 
That is a fascinating question, Justice Ginsburg, that had not occurred to me because, of course, the material witness is not a party to the lawsuit. And how the common law would have treated that, I, I do not know. It does seem to me to be a part of advocacy, but it also seems to be kind of like initiating a new proceeding against the but material But if you're witness. talking about witness, it's the same swear, I swear, that this is what the police report, I gather from the police report, and it's the same exact uh, form as the one that leads to the prosecution but it happens during the trial. If, if just your puzzlement shows it isn't that easy to draw the line between what is advocacy and uh, what, what is uh, testimony. Well, it is easy to draw the line. To, to me, and that's the fundamental issue in this case, testimony is not advocacy. Swearing is not making a decision. You don't decide whether to tell the truth or not. When you go under oath, you tell the truth. Now, well, then why are you having such a problem with this case? You say that maybe there would be prosecutorial immunity if the very same thing happened while the trial is going on. I was having trouble, Justice Ginsburg, because I don't think anybody ever thought of that question before. And as I'm thinking about it, I think that that is the initiation of a new action against the material witness and uh, would not be subject to immunity. Now, the different analogy that I had thought of is what if the prosecutor swears in support of some motion during the trial itself? seems to me that is a different thing where different sorts of protections exist. That is within the area that the common law would have well, found what, advocacy. What, what, what if a prosecutor avows or swears the court, uh, I subpoenaed this witness, he's not here, I ask you to issue a bench warrant, uh, protected or not? If it's necessary under the Fourth Amendment for that witness to have probable cause for that bench warrant, it seems to me that he may, again, be initiating a new proceeding against that witness well, if he's lying or but, she is. But the, the subpoena had already been served. The bench warrant just really advanced, says, you know, you come right now. And I don't know what the constitutional requirements would be with regard to the bench warrant under those circumstances, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. I would say that that with regard to, uh, my thoughts have been with regard to the defendant himself or herself. With regard to that person, once you're in court in the, in, in the heat of battle, swearing or avowing or proffering is the more usual situation, that that is within the witness immunity if it's a witness, the prosecutorial immunity if it's a prosecutor. But the initiation of a new proceeding to arrest, that's where the common law has looked. And I have not seen cases that have focused on what if you initiate a new proceeding in the middle of another proceeding? I would assume the law would be the same, but I don't know what the common law was. And, of course, that, I think, is what the Court has to look at. What would have been the understanding in, 17, or in, in 1871 about liability here? And it wouldn't necessarily have been the opinion of the North Dakota Supreme Court in 1927, which was characterized in the Solicitor General's brief as having been a suit based on a false complaint. That is a false document. I understand the argument here would be very different if our, our only argument were Ms. Kalina lied when she signed the information and said Rodney uh, Fletcher committed a burglary in the information. That is an immune act. That is the initiation of a prosecution. That is a decision. That is advocacy. But when she takes the Fourth Amendment separate role of making an oath or affirmation, she is doing something that has much more ancient roots and should not turn on the the, the difficult lines, I think, Justice Ginsburg, would be if there was a, a line that was based on the name of the charging document or the particular local um, procedure. I have looked at a number of states in regard to this, and, and the states are very various, and the counties, I'm sure, within states vary as to how they handle criminal prosecutions and when uh, the police how, where the police hand off to the prosecutors and to draw a line straight through 
um, based on Washington's particular procedure, I think would be extraordinarily difficult and, and create uh, different rules in different states. And, of course, in Section 1983, the Civil Rights Act was supposed to, I think, establish federal minimums for the protection of residents of the various states, regardless of what their state officials decided to do. And when the, the fact that our state officials and our prosecutors have over the years said, well, wouldn't it be easier if we just were the witnesses and we just provided the oath or, a, or affirmation, rather than have police officers or FBI agents or the various people who do it in every other jurisdiction in the country, perhaps save one, um, that can't change the constitutional rights and remedies of the people of Washington that were enshrined in 1871 and existed a long time before that, of saying, if you lie about me and cause me to be arrested, I have a cause of action to recover for my damage. Well, now in the Burns case, I think we gave absolute immunity to a prosecutor who gave false evidence at a hearing to get a search warrant, didn't we? I think uh, not, Justice O'Connor. In, in Burns, the police officer testified, and I believe the police officer was separately sued and was not um, uh, a party before this court. The, uh, but the, the prosecutor, the prosecutor, certainly, who presented the false evidence, was given uh, absolute immunity. I, presenting and, and acting, asking questions, and, and even drafting documents, those are prosecutorial-type functions. But swearing on the bottom line, that's when it changes. That's what the, where the Fourth Amendment says it changes to from an illegal arrest to a legal arrest. That's where the common law said it changed. And even magistrates could be sued at common law if uh, there was no oath or affirmation. The person who puts their name on that oath or affirmation, that ca that's what causes an arrest. And the 1983 says a person who causes another to be deprived of their rights guaranteed by the Constitution. What causes that arrest is swearing on the line that says, I swear that this is true. And the person who d has done that has always been subject to liability, I think was in the Burns case. In some ways, it's very much like in the Buckley case. A, a counsel referred to Buckley as if the court granted prosecutorial immunity there, and I think it did not. And I think that's the answer to uh, Justice Souter's questions about how broadly do you define under the the, the, I think the, the petitioners here are really refighting Buckley and saying, well, everything we do is designed to, you know, convict or to prosecute or to decide whether to prosecute or not. So everything we do should be prosecutorial. And Buckley certainly said that's not the case um, with regard to particularly one function um, that uh, was, I think, very analogous to what happened here, which is the manufacturing of false evidence. In a very real sense, our claim is that Lynn Kalina manufactured false evidence against Rodney Fletcher that at a, at a, a, and she did so not only with regard to the trial, but with regard to a critical moment when nobody else was there in court to correct it, that the common law and that the cases um, of the majority of circuits certainly uh, since have always said. Well, it all boils down to how you analyze the function. And uh, in one sense, you can say that in Mali, the function being performed by the police officer uh, in signing the affidavit was to further the investigation for a crime. And here, the function being served was to further the prosecution of a criminal, an alleged crime. Except, uh, Justice O'Connor, in Mali, what the police officer... There was an initiation of a prosecution here, and there was not at the stage in Mali. 
It depends only on what you call a prosecution. There was a criminal complaint filed against Mr. Briggs, and the request of Officer Malley was that Mr. Briggs be uh, apprehended and brought, held and held to answer this complaint. It wasn't let him bring him in here for fingerprints or bring him in here so he can take his picture and show it to witnesses. It was bring him in here and hold him to answer for the charge that I'm getting a judge to issue right now. Exactly the same except in name to what uh, Ms. Kalina did here. And I think the function test can't turn on the name uh, that a specific state gives a particular document. Can, can you help me with something else I don't know and perhaps are there are there grand jury in, indictments as well in Washington? There can be, Your Honor. Yeah. All right. When, when the grand jury indicts someone, then that's automatically probable cause to try the person, isn't it? That's my understanding. It's very yeah. rare in Washington. All right. Oh. Well, what I really want to know is, is it also probable cause to arrest the person without going through any other procedure? My understanding of the case law elsewhere uh, is that the issuance of a grand jury indictment is sufficient itself to uh, warrant an arrest warrant. It would and, not and be under Washington law. It, it, and do you, do you, are you familiar enough in instances where a, 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 a case begins through an information, in which case the, the prosecutor, I take it, signs a statement and says these are the facts and this is sufficient, uh, and if it's accepted, I take it that makes probable cause for beginning the trial. Is that what an information does? You write out on a piece of paper what the facts are, and you say that this is the, uh, these constitute the crime, and you give it to the judge, and now the judge says, yes, we can begin the trial now. Is that basically how it works? It's, a, it's, a, it's an allegation, Your Honor. And in Washington, it's usually summary. It only says, I... Right, now, do you need some backup? Uh, for that to begin the trial? Only if you arrest. In Washington, you can initiate a prosecution. Ms. Kalina could have charged Mr. Uh, Fletcher simply by filing an information not sworn. He would not have been arrested. That would have been just fine. Washington procedure provides for that. They could you have sent need Fletcher. probable cause to begin the proceeding. You need probable cause only to arrest him. So you could bring, a pro you could bring if you don't arrest somebody, a, a proceeding against him in a criminal court without probable cause. I think you'd be violating your oath, and I think you'd be subject to dismissal. You would not be subject, if you are a prosecutor, to a federal civil rights suit or a malicious prosecution action in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, but that would, you can file the document, and indeed, that is the only required document. And many of the, the question here is, what is a prosecutorial function? If we look historically, why have Washington prosecutors always, uh, all of a sudden, taken on the role of witnesses uh, when they, no prosecutors have historically that we can find. And the answer is not because Washington law requires them to, because Washington law says clearly you can initiate a prosecution, no. and, and in fact the only thing that is required is the filing of an information. Right, so I'm bothered by this slightly odd phrasing of, the, of, the, um, of what she swore to. It was that, that I am familiar with the police report, and the case contains the following. And it's as if she's vouching for it, but not stating it. I, I, I don't know how to deal with this. It's a it's rather unusual animal, and I don't know how to uh, think of it. Well, we haven't got into the facts yet, of course, Your Honor, because absolute immunity, it doesn't matter if she made the whole no, thing No, I know. I mean, then follow a bunch of factual statements. What I'm thinking of it, is this odd way. Right. I mean, she's not vouching for it. She's not even vouching. I mean, she's not saying she knows it. She's saying it's in the police report. That's what she knows. Well, number one, well, that that plate, this, is, this, is this typical of what goes into a prosecutor's certificate for determination of, 
uh, probable cause, those words, is familiar with the police report, the case contains? I don't know the last phrase, uh, Justice Ginsburg. My experience is that it is fairly typical of both in our prosecutors and, of course, of federal police or law enforcement agents in the federal courts who do the same thing, summarize reports in affidavits. And the, the Jones versus United States said that hearsay can be the basis of an arrest and arrest warrant. So that is what they're capitalizing upon. Uh, but, of course, here our submission and our, what we plan to prove is that not only was she testifying falsely about what Mr. Uh, Fletcher did, but also she's testifying falsely about what's in those police reports. And that will be the question, really, if we get to the question of qualified immunity. If she can say, hey, here's the police reports, how do I know? Well, we've got a different case. But our contention is that she was false on both levels. If, and, if you uh, prevail, can prosecutors uh, maintain their absolute uh, immunity in, in further cases by adopting that sort of formulation and being just a little bit more careful? I don't think it should go on the formulation, Justice Kennedy. I think it goes on swearing or not swearing. If they decide to swear, they're stepping outside their prosecutorial Suppose they swear that I have read the police report, and based on the police report, there's probable cause for the following, and then there's a police affidavit as well. Well, if they, they supplied probable cause that did not otherwise exist and did so falsely, they, they would be the person who was the appropriate defendant. And I, I would think that that would render them liable. I know of nothing in the common law or any other cases that say that claiming to be a second-hand witness enables you to be absolutely immune, immune where claiming to be a first-hand witness does not. And, 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 and oftentimes, as long as you're going to allow hearsay, there's going to be hearsay. Actually, it's a third-hand witness versus a second-hand witness. But again, Officer Malley was a second-hand witness testifying to what was in logs that he had read from other officers. It's exactly the same thing. That can't be the difference. The difference is, if you choose to swear, if you take on that police function, you take on their qualified immunity. You're not, you still have that, but you take on their qualified immunity. But I thought you said in answer to my question that if the prosecutor swears to something while the trial is ongoing, that would be ranked as prosecutorial, even though it involves swearing. So I thought you, you were conceding that you could have sworn plus prosecutorial. It is difficult for me to conceive an instance where the prosecutor could, could step out of the role and issue an affidavit that was not at least subject to — if the prosecution became a trial witness, he would have the immunity of trial witnesses, or she would. The, if, but if so that's the difference. The difference is the common law difference between complaining witnesses and trial witnesses. And prosecutors never become trial witnesses, in my experience, so that's why I'm having trouble uh, conceiving them. No, but there is the Chief Justice's case. Let's assume the, uh, the prosecutor said, you know, I issued the subpoena, uh, and the subpoena doesn't, I take it, require probable cause to believe that anything had been done wrong by the witness. He simply says you are a witness uh, who can give evidence. The witness hasn't showed up. Uh, therefore, issue an arrest warrant. Uh, the, the cause for the arrest warrant uh, consists of the failure to uh, respond to a lawfully issued subpoena. If the, if the prosecutor is lying in that case, then I would suppose, on your theory, the prosecutor could be liable, uh, or at least would strike that, would, would, would not have any absolute immunity, uh, even though, uh, in fact, the process was issued in the middle of a prosecution. Again, my conception of that would be it's a new proceeding against the witness, but that would be the one hard question that would be left under our conception yeah. that Mali should be maintained. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Ford. The case is submitted.